the Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump and the bomb. We're hoping the generals keep him from doing anything crazy, but the system is set up to give the president control over nuclear weapons rather than the military. Adam Schatz will explain. And we'll also speak with Corey Robin about Trump and the reactionary mind. But first, the political circus in Alabama, Roy Moore and Republican politics. For that, we turn to Howell Raines. He's a legendary figure in journalism, an Alabama native who joined the New York Times in 1978 and was executive editor of the paper from 2001 to 2003. He's also published a novel, two memoirs, and an unforgettable oral history of the civil rights movement called My Soul is Rested. We reached him today at home in Alabama on Mobile Bay. Howell Rains, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's great to talk to you. Well, we are trying to understand politics in Alabama. Just in case somebody hasn't heard the news, the Washington Post reported that the Republican Senate candidate in Alabama, Roy Moore, sexually molested a 14-year-old girl after luring her to his remote home in the Alabama hills. He was 32 at the time. The Washington Post interviewed three other women who said that Moore pursued them when they were teenagers, and he was in his early 30s. And then another woman said Moore tried to rape her when she was 16, and he was district attorney in Gadsden, Alabama. That's shocking enough for any Senate candidate, especially one who's run as an evangelical Christian. But the bigger shock is that Republicans in the state so far, anyway, are not rescinding their endorsements of him. All seven of Alabama's Republican representatives in the House have not withdrawn their endorsements, and the state director of the Trump campaign has not withdrawn his endorsement. So, as we speak, Roy Moore remains the Republican candidate for the Senate from Alabama. Can you help us understand why? Well, up to a point, John, I covered my first George Wallace segregation rally in 1965, and I've been trying to figure out Alabama's politics ever since. But this has to be the most bizarre episode in, in my experience, and it's, uh, it's breaking out in a number of different ways. Let me touch on a couple to begin with. One, Alabama rank-and-file Republicans are in a state of shock, and uh, there are several elements to that. One, 50% of the Republican voters in Alabama are self-identified evangelicals. They seem to be holding steady. But in the affluent suburbs around Birmingham and Mobile, there's a kind of a soccer mom backlash going on among uh, people, uh, professionals in the uh, white Republican suburbs, particularly uh, women, saying, you know, this, this will not do. And at the neighborhood level, in those same suburbs, uh, like the one I live in in Fairhope, Alabama, today I heard a dyed-in-the-wool Alabama Republican say he's uh, voting for Roy Moore and going to put a Roy Moore sign in his, in his uh, yard. So things are, are rippling under the surface. On the official side, it as, is as you described, everyone seems frozen in place. And there seems to be universal agreement they'd like to have another candidate. I was at a luncheon today with about 20 
uh, Alabama uh, businessmen, middle-aged successful businessmen, I would say uh, at least four-fifths of them are, are Republicans, they're almost embarrassed to talk about the race. There seems to be general support for the view that if they could get rid of him, they would. And there are several avenues of escape, so to speak, being discussed. What they would really like to see happen is Kay Ivey, the Republican governor, delay the election. She may have the statutory authority to do that. That would give the Republican Party a chance to put another nominee, probably uh, Luther Strange or Jeff Sessions, on the ticket. There's a lot of sentiment here for Sessions to leave Washington and come back home, and it's thought that he might actually be able to to run a successful write-in campaign under Alabama law. But what has got everyone stuck is that Roy Moore's name will be on the ballot on December 12th, whatever happens. He can't be removed from that ballot, and any votes that he gets will uh, be counted. That means the nightmare scenario for Republicans is that Roy Moore gets his evangelical vote, or at least a substantial fraction of it. A write-in candidate like Sessions or Luther Strange gets a big chunk of the mainstream Republican vote, opening the door for Doug Jones, the very good uh, Democratic candidate, uh, to win that Senate seat. If that happens, that will be the most revolutionary election in Alabama during my lifetime, certainly. Uh, because Alabama has never had a genuine New South progressive governor or senator, uh, or at least uh, who escaped prosecution for one reason or another. Well, I want to follow up on each of these alternatives, but but first, I think we need to be reminded about exactly who is Roy Moore. You said in a wonderful opinion piece in the New York Times on Sunday, elections here are performance art, with victory as the reward for the eye-catching clowns. What is Roy Moore's place in this uh, history of the politics of performance art in Alabama? He's probably the most extreme public personality we've had, certainly since George Wallace or Big Jim Folsom. But both of them were paradigms of political sanity compared to uh, to Roy Moore. He is a West Point graduate. He served in the Army for a while, came home as a, as a prosecuting DA in a mid-sized Alabama town. And he got elected circuit court judge and immediately posted a hand-carved copy of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. Based on this uh, religious symbol, he got elected to the state Supreme Court. He installed a 5,000-pound boulder in the lobby of the Supreme Court building in Montgomery with with the Ten Commandments engraved in it. Even the Alabama courts ruled that this was an unconstitutional intrusion into the judicial process. And he actually gave up his seat on the Supreme Court rather than bow to the court order to remove his boulder. (laughs) That has made him a kind of folk hero in Alabama of the sort that we haven't seen since Wallace, probably. And I think the thing that's very hard for people outside Alabama to understand, and that is the value that Alabama voters have placed since before the Civil War on romanticized defiance, Yes. There's a kind of knee-jerk, self-parodying, and self-destructive populism here that says we're going to show ourselves in the worst possible light, and we don't give a damn what you think of it. 
it's the political environment that, frankly, people of my generation who went through the 60s here and were proud of the way Alabama finally accommodated to desegregation thought that we would live long enough to see pass away, but it's back stronger than ever. I think the two factors that have driven that are, one, the Republican Revolution in the South since Ronald Reagan uh, came on the scene. It's made the white man's party almost an apartheid-like political environment of the Republican Party. And also this massive religious revival that's still sweeping the country and is felt most intensely uh, in places like Alabama. And tell us about the Democratic nominee, Doug Jones. I know you went to see him recently in Daphne, Alabama, at the Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church. What was that like? Well, it took me back to the 60s. It was an integrated audience of liberal Democrats and uh, black Christians. And Doug Jones has a folk hero status in this constituency. And, you know, it's important to realize, for example, that in the last presidential election, Hillary Clinton got 750,000 votes in Alabama. Yeah. So he, and that's a lot of people who are here who are not buying in to the, to the general madness. And this was a, a kind of a rally for that kind of voter. And Doug Jones is a legitimate hero in, in my estimation. He and I grew up in neighborhoods that were side-by-side uh, side under the shadow of the steel mills in Birmingham. He's 10 years younger than I am. And he put two of the four Klansmen who killed the four little girls at 16th Baptist Church in prison for life. And this was at a time when the FBI, the Justice Department, all the Alabama authorities had given up on ever catching these guys. They were known, but were walking around as free men uh, because for various technical reasons they weren't uh, prosecuted. He revived those cases and uh, put them uh, in prison, as I say. He was at that time a U.S. attorney. He's a, he's a successful but not super rich high society lawyer. He's a very steady guy, and he has a really interesting way of speaking to Alabama uh, white people in terms that they don't find threatening, and yet he's very explicit about being a four-square supporter of civil rights and a, of a woman's right to choose. This is the most vigorous Democratic campaign that's been waged in Alabama in 30 years, at least. So on Tuesday, December 12th, that's in four weeks or something like that, we have an election contest in Alabama between this celebrated prosecutor of Klan bombers and a former judge who sexually abused a 14-year-old girl and tried to rape a 16-year-old girl when he was district attorney. Who's going to win, do you think? Those are the allegations uh, against him, I should, and, and even Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Republican Party in Washington, say they believe the women. Yeah. So I think Doug Jones has a chance uh, of winning, a legitimate chance, and I think it is enhanced by this scandal. That said, here's the fact of Alabama as it ex has existed since the Goldwater campaign of 64, especially since the Reagan campaign of 1980, there are Republic, white Republicans in this state who, no matter what the civic or patriotic crisis, simply would never vote for a Democrat. The best-case scenario for Doug Jones, and I think it could make him the winner, is that they will stay home rather than vote for this despicable character. But 
enough of them will turn out and vote for this man based on party loyalty and legitimate and genuine on their part hatred of the Democrats that Doug Jones has to have two things. He has to have a strong black vote and he has to have a strong vote of white suburban crossover Republicans. So that's that's the state of play. I should add that things are in such a state of flux, both in Alabama and in Washington, that it, it can't really make any definitive predictions as to who might be a write-in sessions or, or this kind of average corporate lawyer type Luther Strange, the, the interim senator, and he's the sort of candidate that Alabamians feel very comfortable with, non-threatening and absolutely not an innovative thought in his mind. So it's a, it's a deep immersion in the Alabamaness of Alabama for me. <laughs> I, I still live in the New York area. I'm up there in the summers, and the moment the, uh, that Roy Moore got the uh, nomination in September to run as a Republican senatorial candidate, before any of this sexual scandal broke, I told my wife, we've got to go back to Alabama immediately. <laughs> yes. I have to be there for this election. It's, it's the biggest watershed we've had since, potential watershed since the Wallace years. If Doug Jones is successful, it is finally a new day in Alabama. If Roy Moore wins, then it means that we're still mired in the, in the same old swamp. Believe me, the swamps in Alabama are stickier than the ones Trump rages about in Washington. <laughs> Howell Rains, deep immersion in the Alabamaness of Alabama. He's the legendary newsman who wrote about Roy Moore for the New York Times opinion section, a wonderful piece on the Alabama embarrassment syndrome. Howell Raines, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. I hope we get to talk again, and uh, maybe we'll have a, a happy ending to this tale. <laughs> Now it's time to talk about Trump and the bomb. And for that, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's a contributing editor at the London Review of Books, and he's the former literary editor of The Nation. He writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, and other publications. We reached him today in Brooklyn. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we've all been hoping Trump's generals will stop him from launching a nuclear war with North Korea. We're talking here about John Kelly, his chief of staff, former Marine Corps general, uh, the defense secretary, former Marine Corps general James Mattis. There's this other general, McMaster, who's his national security advisor. We've been told they have a pact designed to ensure that one of them is always in the country to watch over Trump in case he, quote, goes off the deep end. But you point out in the London Review of Books that our system of nuclear decision-making, which was set up after Hiroshima, has the explicit purpose of keeping the bomb out of the hands of the military and keeping it under the exclusive control of the president. What was the reasoning behind the idea that civilians and not the military should control nuclear weapons? Well, the reasoning uh, behind it, John, was that a civilian president would be uh, less likely to leap into a nuclear confrontation. Truman, after the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was extremely wary of nuclear weapons and afraid that uh, his generals might want to carry out uh, another strike. In fact, other strikes were planned uh, against Japan, and he called them off. And uh, he made sure that even that the nuclear parts 
of, of weapons were, were physically separated and placed under the auspices of the Atomic Energy Commission. So that was the thinking behind it. Thinking, of course, was also that Americans are not going to elect a president who would uh, flirt with nuclear conflict. Democracy was considered to be a guarantee, a bulwark, against uh, rash military action. Now, today, of course, we find ourselves almost in the opposite situation, where we're hoping that the military will be more sober than the president that Americans have elected. And what have past presidents, uh, civilians, said about using nuclear weapons? Have they been less warlike and more committed to peace? What about Nixon? What about Obama? Nixon certainly wasn't. Um, And, of course, Nixon famously or notoriously wanted the North Vietnamese to think that he was mad and that he might use nuclear weapons. Uh, He had this notion that if Ho Chi Minh thought that uh, America might begin bombing uh, with atomic weapons, that he would uh, uh, scurry to to Paris to uh, make peace on American terms. And in fact, Nixon mocked Henry Kissinger for, quote-unquote, not thinking big, for not being willing to consider the use of, of nuclear force. Um, other presidents have been uh, more prudent, but at the same time, no American president has said, we take nuclear weapons off the table. The, the idea has always been all options should be on the table. And that's been true of Democrats as much as Republicans. I like the idea that thinking big means uh, nuclear war. That's a kind of an interesting phrase. <laughs> the official purpose of the American nuclear program throughout the Cold War was specifically not to attack the Soviet Union. It was to deter the Soviet Union from attacking us. And we are told in retrospect, look, it worked. We're all still here. The nuclear program was a success. What's your perspective on the Cold War uh, strategy of the United States? Um, my understanding is that that was the official, ration, the, the official uh, rationale uh, to deter a Soviet attack but that uh, there was always planning for a potential first use, and, and that the, the main concern will had to do with Soviet retaliatory capacity in the event of an American strike. I think that um, if you read histories of, uh, of, of the Cold War, you quickly get the idea that, in fact, we're, we're lucky that we didn't have a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union, and that there were numerous instances in which such a confrontation might have taken place. One of, one of them, of course, the, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. You, you could, in fact, argue that we survived uh, the Cold War rather than that we won the Cold War. And whatever happened to the power of Congress to declare war, the responsibility of the Congress to declare war, we, that hasn't uh, happened for many decades now. No, that has receded uh, since uh, the Second World War. And in fact, uh, some would argue that Congress is, is, is happy not to have it. I, I don't think you see a, a great deal of pushback uh, from the House or the Senate, although some politicians have put forward um, uh, bills recently to ensure that pre- the, the Congress does have a say in whether there is, for example, a first strike on North Korea. Yes, the Congress, the, the bill uh, has, that bill has been introduced in the House by Ted Lieu, Democrat of Los Angeles, who happens to represent uh, my district. And that mm-hmm. bill says that there will be no uh, first uh, strike without, a congress- without congressional approval. There's a similar bill in the Senate. Obviously, this is not going to pass now or in the foreseeable future, but it's... It's uh, very important. It's a, it's a, it's a very important. Um, intervention, not least for the fact 
that it raises the question of presidential war-making power, particularly bomb power, and, and forces Americans to reflect on the structure of, uh, of, of American uh, political decision-making. Not many Americans, I think, are even aware of the extent to which the president monopolizes uh, bomb power. I mean, the, the conversation that takes place prior to, the, uh, prior to a nuclear attack isn't, need not be a particularly long one. Uh, it's a conversation between uh, the president and the uh, secretary of defense, other chosen advisors, and then uh, the order goes out through the Pentagon to the combatant commanders um, in the field, and it's within a matter of minutes that these uh, orders are given and processed. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty scary thing when you, when you uh, stop to consider it. Well, Americans may not be aware of how the decision-making process has been designed, but they are aware of this thing called the football. Let's, let's talk about the football and, and who controls the football today. The football is basically a, a briefcase that is carried around by an, a, an aide uh, to the president um, at all times, and it's a, it's a leather satchel, and inside of it there is a computer with the nuclear codes um, by which uh, execute orders are transmitted. And the first of those execute orders is known as the biscuit, or the golden code, and the golden code is what confirms the president's identity. The biscuit confirms the president's identity, and this aide is always at the side of the president, and he is a, a military officer of some kind. Is that right? And in fact, in fact, we we even know his name. What is uh, it? We know that his first we know that his first name is Rick. And the the reason that we know this is that he was photographed at Mar-a-Lago uh, by a retired fund manager named uh, Richard Diagazio, a Trump supporter. Uh, who posted the photograph of himself and Rick on Facebook, oh. along with Rick's job description. Uh, in fact, he did this just at the time that the North Koreans had carried out a, a ballistic missile test, um, interrupting Trump's dinner with the Japanese prime minister. Uh, it was a very uh, strange story that made um, headlines. Our anxiety about Trump is is connected to our understanding of his personality and his uh, his emotional structure. He has this dangerous combination of being impulsive, of being aggressive, and being very, very much living in the present without thinking about consequences. So when he feels under attack, for example, by special counsel Robert Mueller, his response throughout his life has been to strike back harder. And because he lives very much in the present and doesn't think about future consequences, he's likely, we fear, to, take, to impulsively take these aggressive acts, which could involve launching an attack on a nuclear attack on North Korea. So right now, what exactly are the structures in place to prevent the president from making a catastrophic, impulsive, emotional decision? I, I uh, John, I, I wish I know, and, and that's a very important question. Uh, we don't have the answer to it. Um, it is terrifying when you think that Trump is someone who can't think very far into the future. I mean, he's someone who um, uh, might, uh, uh, out of a sense of uh, wounded pride, want to carry out a strike against Kim Jong-un, uh, and then 15 minutes later decide that he would like to invite him to Mar-a-Lago or build a casino in the North Korean capital. I think I believe that it is very dangerous to have a person who is so psych 
psychically impulsive and unstable uh, with the power uh, to make such a, a grave decision. So uh, while presidential bomb power is, uh, is, is in itself, I think, inherently uh, dangerous, uh, the fact that we have um, a mentally un- um, unbalanced person in office makes it even more threatening. Well, you argue in your London Review of Books piece that, well, Trump is terrifying. The problem runs much deeper than Trump. What would it take to have meaningful control over nuclear weapons today? Yes, I mean, I, I think that the problem runs much deeper, and I think that Trump is, is, is more of a kind of malignant symptom who has uh, raised this question for us in a very uh, dramatic way. It's clear that this is a kind of decision that no one person um, has the wherewithal, the authority uh, to make. In, in my view, um, in the long run, the, the, the real problem besides the uh, uh, nuclear uh, monopoly that the president enjoys is the very fact, the very existence um, of nuclear weapons. The fact is no one can make this decision. Dropping a nuclear bomb is a, is, a, is, a, is a technical final solution, as it were. So I don't think any people, anyone, uh, should have that uh, authority. But in the absence of, uh, of a thoroughgoing uh, destruction and ban on nuclear weapons, which is very unlikely to happen in our lifetime, there have to be more political and civilian controls. And I do think that Congress will have to uh, become more involved in decisions of, uh, of such high foreign policy uh, significance. How uh, we're going to get Congress to assume that role is, is, is beyond me. And, of course, another problem is that uh, we've, we've realized that uh, our civilian politicians are, are no more trustworthy than our military figures. So um, uh, I'm sorry, John, but I don't have an answer to that question. Adam Schatz, he wrote about the president and the bomb for the London Review of Books. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about Trump and the reactionary mind. For that, we turn to Corey Robin. He teaches political theory at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. He writes for The Nation, The New York Times, Harper's, and other publications. And he's the author of The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump. It's just come out in a new paperback edition. Corey Robin, welcome. Thanks for having me. You have a striking tweet out now reporting that you came to a big conclusion about Trump and why he won. You say he tells the truth, and that's what people love about him. It's a quote. I'm sure you don't mean it's true that Mexicans are rapists. What did you mean? So this was based on a piece in The New Republic that I was talking about. I spent several months reading the the Donald Trump oeuvre, as it were, and, what, and, and I started with The Art of the Deal, and, and going into it, I was expecting, you know, all the, all the kind of standard BS that we had grown accustomed to from him on the campaign trail and, and, and in an office. And what was shocking to me in reading uh, The Art of the Deal, what, and, and I wouldn't say it required me to read it particularly carefully, was how brutally honest he is 
about American capitalism in particular and about his own role in American capitalism. He refers to himself uh, and describes himself as somebody who engages in hyperbole, in fantasy, somebody who makes things up, and that this is the way that American capitalism works, that value, uh, the value of things does not depend upon uh, the quality of the product, the, the, you know, the expertness of the salesmanship or anything like that. It depends upon exaggeration, fantasy, spectacle, and, and a sort of kind of fantastic form of lying. He says that capitalism, uh, the stock market, is no different from gambling uh, uh, or, or a casino. The only difference is that the people in the stock market wear suits. Hmm. So there's a very, um, there's a kind of corrosive cynicism that he is very upfront and honest about that I think speaks to a way a lot of people in this country think about capitalism. In other words, that it's not, you know, uh, dependent upon an honest day's labor, that uh, if you work hard, you can succeed, that only the best rise to the top. So there's this, as I say, this very uh, corrosive skepticism and cynicism about the nature of capitalism and about his own success within the capitalist marketplace uh, that I was, I was really struck by. And, 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 and I think that resonated with, with an awful lot of people. You read Art of the Deal, but of course, that was in, what, the late 80s. Now, Trump seems to endorse a lot of Republicans' traditional economic arguments. He says corporate tax cuts will create jobs. He says it's good to cut taxes on rich people. He says government regulation stifles economic growth. I don't see any undermining of Republican economic arguments in anything Trump has said lately, but maybe I've missed something. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, and there's no doubt, I mean, on many fronts, Donald Trump governs, uh, and, I've, and this is part of the argument of the book, governs very much like a traditional Republican. The strongest argument against all of those positions and the strongest argument against the arguments that Donald Trump now makes on behalf of all those positions is Donald Trump himself. Both what he says in that book, which, you know, from the 1980s, but also what he says in his own campaign documents about how the system is rigged and what he said in his own campaign statements and what he has said about his own success uh, and how he succeeded. So, so there's absolutely no question, um, as you say, that while, while in office he has completely governed like a sort of very standard Republican, and, and I've been saying this for quite a while, the, the justifications and the arguments uh, that, that one would make on behalf of those policies are undermined by, by, him, by, by the man himself. Just a footnote here, you, you, uh, you went back and reread Art of the Deal and found all of these uh, striking uh, non-traditional, non-Republican uh, statements there. You read Art of the Deal, but I wonder if he ever read Art of the Deal. Tony Schwartz, the ghostwriter in the book, says he could never get Trump to read any part of Art of the Deal. Uh, maybe this is uh, irrelevant to, to your point, but it is kind of striking. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, and uh, the, I would really recommend the Jane Mayer piece uh, from, I think it was last fall, yes. uh, where she went back to Tony Schwartz, and, and he really... Uh, the ghostwriter, and he really expresses a, a great deal of remorse about that book because it really did help launch Trump uh, and, and make him a kind of an international brand. 
But what was striking to me in reading the book was that far from burnishing Trump and making him seem like a great man, I thought it was an incredible expose and deflation of Trump. I didn't come away thinking, wow, this is, this is you know, an amazing story about an amazing man at all. I thought it was very revealing of who the man is and, and, and in certain ways of how he's governed. Yeah, well, I think you're right that the corrosive cynicism is something new in self-help books. And uh, that may help explain why it was on the bestseller list for, for 48 uh, weeks. Uh, the people who love him do do like the way that he, quote, tells it like it is about the economy. And I think they probably also uh, like, the effect, like the fact that he says Mexicans are rapists, and they regard that as a kind of truth-telling that you don't usually hear from Republican candidates either. So, Absolutely. I think you're completely right about that. One of the appeals is, you know, he is uh, politically incorrect, proudly politically incorrect. Yeah. Uh, and I think Trump is that, and, and, and I think for a lot of people, you know, we re- on the left and liberals and moderates recoil at that, but there's clearly a part of the country for whom that kind of, you know, to use another phrase from another campaign, straight talk, really resonates. The new edition of your uh, book, The Reactionary Mind, is about conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump. I think a lot of people just looking at the title would say Donald Trump doesn't really have serious political ideas. What he has is, you know, narcissism, impulsiveness, ignorance, aggression, but not ideas. What do you say to that? I take that in stages. Uh, The first thing is to look at how a lot of the things that people dislike about Trump and accuse Trump of the the contempt for the rule of law, the attack on established elites, including elites within his own party, the contempt for institutions and the Constitution, uh, the kind of ambient violence that has attended him yeah. uh, from the moment he came onto the scene and his you know his entire entourage, all of those things which people dislike about Trump and think are novelties on the right. I try to show in the book, in fact, are constitutive of the right, not just the recent right, but really going back to Edmund Burke. I mean the title quite seriously. It's not intended to be a kind of idle provocation. A good part of this book is a fairly close reading of Edmund Burke. And I try to show that all of these things that we think of as novelties are intrinsic to the project of reactionary thought going back to the French Revolution, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. So that, I think, is part of the continuity there that's important to establish. But now you bring up a different, uh, another aspect of this, which is that Trump really seems to be, compared to even some recent conservative figures, there seems to be a kind of winnowing, a narrowing of the political project, like yes. all about himself. And I think that's also true. I think this is a sign of the sort of slow attenuation and weakening of the conservative movement uh, as a whole, that it has now ground itself down into a figure like this. I mean, the way I think about this is Donald Trump is a walking disaster and has been a disaster as president, extraordinarily weak in all sorts of ways, and yet he was by far the strongest candidate 
uh, the Republicans could wield. In fact, the only candidate I would argue they could wield this, this time around and have won the election. And I think that tells you something less about Donald Trump and more about the state of the Republican Party and the conservative movement today. One of the more striking arguments in the new edition of your book is that the right has succeeded, but it doesn't have anything to react against anymore. You know, if you look at Fox News, you certainly don't get that view. They're reacting against Obamacare, Black Lives Matter, the homosexual agenda, and, and, and so on. What do you mean when you say the right doesn't have anything to react against anymore? So historically, what the right was always about was not just reacting against free-floating currents of cultural modernity. It was really reacting against organized emancipatory movements of the left that were engaged in acts of dispossession. Now, those movements of the left have varied since the French Revolution. It could be a movement of commoners against a king. It could be abolition. Uh, it could be the black freedom struggle. It could be the labor movement. It could be the women's uh, liberation movement. These were these very concerted movements that were in, both in the streets, fighting in the culture sphere, and also fighting at the level of the state and facing some genuine prospects uh, for success or actually achieve success. The more modern version of the conservative movement engaged in serial attack on the labor movement, the women's movement, and the black freedom struggle. And on many, many measures, overwhelmingly has been successful. I mean, the first and foremost would be the labor movement, you know, effectively destroyed. Yes. And uh, on the black freedom struggle, I mean, let's just think back to the, you know, the original question of desegregation. The United States today is more segregated, racially segregated by neighborhood and by school than it was under Ronald Reagan. Mm. The racial wealth gap, I mean, there's all these material facts in which the right has triumphed. Uh, abortion is, in many states is ex almost non-existent. So on many, many fronts, the right has won. And despite the kind of hysteria that you hear on Fox News, I would argue uh, that you can see that victory in the, and how the right has governed itself. First and foremost, the fact that they could allow themselves to have chosen someone like Donald Trump uh, in the first place. In the 1960s and the 1970s and 1980s, it would have been unthinkable for somebody with so little political experience, for such a clown, to have come this close, they, because there was too much at stake for them. Yeah. So I would say that's the first thing. The second thing is just look at how they've governed since. They have total control over the federal government. And with the exception of the Neil Gorsuch ascension to the court, which we really have to attribute to Mitch McConnell right. more than anything else, they have been singularly incapable of moving any kind of legislative program forward. I mean, it really is unprecedented, I think, in modern political history to see a political party have this level of control over the federal apparatus and be so completely hapless, particularly in the legislative arena. Corey Robin, his book, The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump, has just come out in a new paperback edition. Corey, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Finally, a word about the Edge of Sports. That's our sister podcast here at The Nation, hosted by Dave Zirin, the magazine's sports editor. 
This week, Dave asks the question, what do sports have to do with militarism, and talks to a former Army Ranger and war resistor about the NFL's Veterans Day weekend. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.